with it. And so um, hopefully if this works well, it could uh, could lead to some, it could lead to a better better quality product and you're, you get to be the, the test drive. Cool. <laughs> or yeah, yeah. And you sound like you're, I think I'm coming in a little stronger than you. So that probably just means I have to back up my microphone a little bit. But in any case, so um, thanks. Um, so what, what's happening? Like what's uh, what's happening out out west? Uh, well, I just got home after two months on the road. Um, so I just got back to Whitehorse Saturday afternoon, and uh, it's uh, dark and cold here. And mm-hmm. but uh, solstice was yesterday, so it's getting lighter every day now. Yeah, that's that's always that's always the promising part when winter hits. You know, you're now or now now everything's starting to get get longer as uh, the long grind through the winter begins. Yeah. Very nice. Well, the, the the sound looks sound looks pretty good. So why don't we, um, if if you have no objections, we might as well get started. Yeah, sounds good. Cool. Well, uh, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. This is kind of like a a long time happening, a few weeks happening, and I I appreciate your endurance with my peppering emails to uh, to reach out to you here. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. Very very nice. So um, so what I wanted to start out with was uh, ask you kind of what your um uh. Actually, in your unclimbable piece, which is just an excellent, excellent, uh, excellent story, and it's getting a lot of a lot of attention right now. So I wanted to commend you on that. Thanks. And uh, you had you had a great Lord of the Rings reference up top, so I figured that would be a a, a good chance to even um, like ask you what your favorite Lord of the Rings character is. Okay. Hmm. Probably uh, either Aragorn or Faramir. I'd say Faramir. Yeah, I always liked him. I liked him better in the books than the movies, though. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like kind of you know damaged and had daddy issues, and I liked him. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 um yeah he's he's solid. He doesn't get uh yeah quite the credit in the in the movies for sure. But uh but yeah he's he's much more complex. And um, but how many times have you have you read the trilogy? Oh gosh, I don't know. I was big. I was big into fantasy novels when I was a kid, so I've probably read the trilogy four or five times, maybe. Although I started skipping over some of those early chapters of the first book with all the singing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That can get a bit bogged down, but uh, Bombadil. Yeah, yeah, Bombadil, that jerk. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, uh, you know what, uh. You know, Ira Glass. You know that I'm sure you've heard the talk with him. Uh, he, he talks about artists' tastes being their guiding light and so forth. You know, during tough times and everything. And I, I wonder what, how you would describe your taste in your approach to your work. Hmm, that's an interesting question. I feel like my taste has been evolving a lot the more I've been trying to do this type of work. Um, I, I. Uh, I always read a lot of nonfiction um, when I was younger, but more like pure history or biography. Um, you know, 10 years ago, I would have said my favorite writer was George Orwell. Um, mm-hmm. Not so much for his fiction as for his, his nonfiction, um, you know, Homage to Catalonia and uh, uh, Down and Out in Paris and London, that type of stuff, um, which I guess was sort of me being into narrative nonfiction without really realizing that that was a thing yet. Um, but I think as I've gotten into this, I think I was more impressed early on with the more experimental feature writing and 
the stuff that kind of pushed the the limits aesthetically and and creatively with language. And now I find myself more drawn to more spare writing, mm-hmm. um, more minimal, not not necessarily full on minimalist, but but uh, just more stuff that that is more simple in terms of how it presents the information. Um, which is funny because it's not necessarily how I write. I think I'm a pretty descriptive writer, but I but I really admire people who just report the shit out of something and then present it very simply for readers. Do you find that you that you struggle with trying to not not dumb it down, but to reach a level of simplicity? Like you have to in your in your rewrites that you have to like okay, turn the volume down, let the facts and everything speak for themselves instead of like uh, you know getting a little too. Uh, sort of too into the weeds language wise yeah I think so I come out of more of a creative writing background rather than a journalism background and so my instinct is to go for the dramatic language flourish you know mm-hmm. and I and I probably could tone that down and try to just let my stories speak for themselves more so tell me the story about how you took up narrative journalism okay um so so I was in grad school uh, about 10 years ago, and I, my plan was to be a historian. I was going to be an academic, and, but I always wanted to be a writer. I didn't know what kind of writer I wanted to be. I think when I was a kid, I sort of only knew about fiction, so I just assumed I would write fiction. And um, so the plan was to be an academic and have a cushy you know, life as a professor and write, you know, write my books in the summers or whatever. That was my sort of ambitious 17-year-old's plan. And... Uh, Kept writing through undergrad and, and grad school just on the side, you know, for the school paper. I wrote poetry, that sort of stuff. And then in grad school, I started doing some travel writing for my hometown paper, The Ottawa Citizen. While I was over there, I was I was going to grad school in England. And so I did some travel stories for the paper and um, kind of got hooked on that idea and got sort of disillusioned with academia at the same time and felt sort of restricted in terms of the types of stories I could tell as a as a academic historian um so I finished my master's and canceled my plans to do a PhD and uh came home to Canada and started trying to freelance um and initially it was strictly travel writing um partly because I I love to travel and I thought that was an interesting um thing to write about but partly sort of a strategic calculation in terms of Back then, a lot of other stuff was still done by staff writers, and travel writing was really an area where freelancers could get in there in a way that you couldn't at the time in in arts and culture writing to the same extent that you can now, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, 2006, 2007, people still had staff writing jobs. Imagine that. (laughs) Um, So I started out strictly in travel and then kind of gradually broadened into – other areas and it was it was basically in 2011 a bunch of my sort of steady travel blogging travel writing gigs had fallen through and I was kind of starting from scratch again and I <clears throat> figured out that what I really wanted to do was sort of general interest magazine style like narrative feature writing and that's when I started trying to work towards that and it's been it's you know still in progress <laughs> was there a particular writer that you drew inspiration from as you excuse me, look to make that transition into more general interest uh, magazine journalism? Yeah, there were a few. Um, Matt Power was a big one for mm-hmm. me. Um, you know, the first time I met him, I saw him at do a reading and, and met him afterwards. And and then I went home and Googled him and looked at his list of publications and was like, I want to be just like this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So he would have been one early on. And then as I got more into things, you know, and more knowledgeable, it was people like David Graham. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm trying to think who else back in, back when I was first kind of figuring this stuff out. And now I'm like immersed in this, you know, long form world all the time. And I have tons of, tons of names of people that I admire. And, but I'm trying to think who I actually knew about early on. It's people like Ian Fraser and, and Matt. And uh, I use the um, I use the Best American collections a lot to figure out who I you know what to read and um, yeah yeah that's that's a great resource uh, for who to read but also where to pitch too yeah yeah I was very uh, with the travel writing one early on I I used that used the notable selections list to figure out what publications were publishing the types of writing I wanted to do and. In terms of the more obscure stuff, too, you know, some of the literary journals and things, I, I wouldn't have heard of them otherwise, probably. Now, when you met Matt Power, uh, what was that interaction like? You know, I don't, I don't remember meeting him the first time I met him. I, <laughs> I remember seeing him read. He read Mississippi Drift at uh, Idlewild Books in New York. It was the Best American Travel Writing launch party, I think, in 2009. And... I remember seeing him read and thinking that he was like the coolest ever and mm-hmm. being too freaked out to talk to him. That's the last thing I remember. And, but when we reconnected on social media a couple years later, he remembered meeting me. So I must have like blacked out and introduced myself while <laughs> like terrified to meet him. So, which is sort of funny because um, he's not, a t- he was, you know, not a terrifying person in any way. Um, yeah, and then we kept in touch on social media and email, and he, he helped me out with some stories, and, and we had drinks in New York a couple times. And, uh, yeah, he was, a, he was definitely like a mentor figure for me. That must have been, uh, must have been nice to, to meet someone in person, and it sounds like he sort of lived up to your own billing of him. Like he didn't come across as just a jerk when you met him. Oh, yeah, no, he was way – yeah, no, Matt was the best. He was uh, – so generous and you know not the least bit you know threatened or or i don't know he was he was just the most amazing thing after he died for me was not that i thought i was in some way special and he'd like singled me out but it was it was amazing to see how many people had had the exact same experience with him that i had of him going out of his way to help us get our starts and and it was like i mean i i there was like maybe like a hundred of us. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, just, just incredible generosity and and just so open. You know, not that he was very. I think he was competitive in terms of what he wanted his work to be, but he never seemed to feel like he needed to hide anything from anyone else or, or you know, keep anything for himself. Yeah, it sounds like yeah. It's you know people like that are are, are great or great examples because they truly like illustrate that. You know, a rising tide floats all boats. You know, they're not mm-hmm. hoarding on stuff, and they're they're willing to take people under their wing, and then to kind of lead by example and realize that they're doing good work. But they're also it just supports the whole culture to have as many possible people doing this kind of work. And you know, the having those kinds of relationships are just and seeing seeing it in action, and you don't have to be a a jerk to get ahead. Actually, it's it, nice guys and sometimes get the bad rap for finishing last, but it's nice to see examples that he set. And then that's clearly influenced you. And I imagine as your success keeps snowballing, you know, you're going to have that same sense of paying it forward. Yeah, definitely. I, um, 
I try, you know, I try my best to be supportive for the most part, you know, it's, it's, uh, when you get emails, sometimes you're like, Oh, I'm tired. I have a lot of work. <laughs> I don't want to deal with this. But then <clears throat> I try to remind myself that, you know, a lot of other people helped me out when I was in that position and I should take the time and, um, yeah. What sort of, a are you getting like more increased attention from just from readers and random people uh just reaching out to to speak to you like what's that experience been like as your profile as a writer has started to increase yeah i don't get i don't get inundated by any means i get a occasional emails mostly from young writers often kind of college age looking um looking to freelance or looking to do feature writing and and sort of asking for my advice on how to get into that and um, and I try my best to be helpful. It's hard sometimes. I think the hardest thing is that often people don't, they're not even deep enough in yet to have specific questions. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to give someone just really general advice aside from, you know, like read a lot and write a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's nice to hear from people and to, and then to sometimes see them, you know, maybe you put them in touch with an editor and then that results in them getting a piece published or something. It's, it's cool. Yeah. And what, what com- most commonly what did what advice do you or how how in which ways do you find that you're helpful in guiding people looking looking at you as the example and maybe the way they're looking at you the way you once looked at Matt yeah i feel like i don't give people a ton of like creative advice um maybe i i have more to offer in terms of practical advice um if people are looking to freelance, you know, maybe they're, they're sort of famous writing heroes who have staff jobs don't actually have a lot of practical advice in that arena, but that's something that I can offer is, you know, the, I had a bunch of friends with, with newspaper jobs here in Whitehorse who sort of one by one quit their local newspaper jobs to freelance. And the first thing I told all of them was to have six months savings before they quit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it's hard for people to wrap their heads around just how long it takes to get, pitches turned into acceptances turned into published work turned into paychecks and so that's something i always emphasize to people not to discourage them to but to make sure they're prepared i I say it it takes at least six months to a year to start making a living from freelancing and you know if you're starting from from zero and that's uh and that's optimistic even for some people you know yeah absolutely and and when you were getting your start what was what were those early months like as you were crafting your queries and digging up stories, doing pre-reporting, it, like that whole process. What was that like for you in the first few months? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I was mainly doing travel blogging at the time, so there wasn't a lot of um, – I had kind of established relationships, and I was doing short, you know, two to three sentence or two to three paragraph hits, 10 bucks a piece, 25 bucks a piece, and just making those add up. And I was – I think I was – when I quit my day job – I I quit too soon. I quit about six months ahead of schedule because I felt that I was at the point where I would have to start turning down writing opportunities to keep the day job. I couldn't keep doing both. I was getting up at 5 a.m. and working until it was time to go to the office and then working all evening after after the day in the office. And uh, it wasn't sustainable anymore. So, I, but, I, but I quit and I was only making about $800 a month from writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up giving up my apartment <clears throat> when I quit my job and just kind of living out of a suitcase for a year and a half while I got my income kind of ramped up to the level where I could sign a lease. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was pretty hectic. You know, it was like sitting, you know, on a bunk bed in a hostel in New Orleans writing 10 blog posts a day. <laughs> <laughs> um, it wasn't very glamorous at all. Um, uh, pretty stressful, actually. I, I wouldn't actually recommend that people did it the way I the way I did it. It was like, you know, eating spaghetti for every meal and and paying, you know, down to my last running up credit card debt and it was it was like not awesome. So Yeah. <laughs> what was your day job? My day job was actually pretty cool. It was um it was in my field. I uh I was a like a professional kind of historian for hire at this private consultancy. Um so a kind of mini industry in Canada is First Nations land claims. So there's a whole sort of decades worth of litigation over the old British treaties and the thing, the promises that were made to First Nations peoples that weren't kept. And now all of those things are getting hashed out in the courts in terms of, you know, sort of compensation for, for broken treaties and, and, and that sort of thing. And uh, so I worked for a firm of, of historians, you know, trained, trained researchers who we would get hired by lawyers to do the historical research for these, these legal cases about, you know, 18th century treaties or 19th century treaties. So I worked in the archives every day in Ottawa, the National Archives, and, uh, you know, dug up old documents. It was actually pretty cool, but travel writing was cooler, so. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and uh, like, backing up a little bit, um, where did you grow up? I grew up in Ottawa, so the, the capital of Canada. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. Did, um, so, and what did your parents do? My dad uh, had, they were, they split up when I was like six mm -hmm. and my dad had kind of a couple different careers. Um, he worked in the co-op movement when I was really young. Um, so he kind of did sort of research and analysis and sort of cooperative theory for a sort of umbrella organization for Canadian co-ops. Um, I think he was, his title was research director or something. So basically he was like, like actually a communist, like <laughs> um, trying to, figure out ways that co-ops could operate better, you know, housing co-ops, food co-ops, that sort of thing, how they could, you know, have better governance and that sort of stuff. Um, and then he did various things after, you know, the early 90s kind of crushed the last remains of the hopeful 60s and 70s. <laughs> and uh, and then he ended up going back to school and ended up actually working in the Canadian Foreign Service as a diplomat. Um, he started that job when I was, like, in high school. So that helped with the travel writing mm -hmm. thing because my dad was living overseas when I was in college and grad school. Um, and my mom did various jobs with mostly sort of nonprofits. Um, women's groups did sort of administrative and communications jobs for them. And then her last job was, um, she was actually a, a grant writer for a national arts organization. So, so when you wanted to become a, a writer, what, what was the level of support from your parents? <laughs> um, my mom was super, super supportive. She was always the like, follow your dreams, you can do anything <laughs> type. And my dad is a lot more practical um, and, you know, kind of worried about how I was going to pay the bills and, and, you know, kind of cautioning me that a lot of people want to be writers and not a lot of people make it. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. but he was actually the one who convinced me to quit, to quit my day job when the, when the time came. Huh. That surprised um, you? 
Yeah, yeah. And I, I, you know, I think maybe I wouldn't have listened to my mom being like, of course you can do it. <laughs> but my dad was like, you know, super practical. I basically I got to this point where I'm like, should I quit my job and, and, and go off and live out of a suitcase? And he was like, okay, worst case scenario, you fail, you're stranded somewhere, you call us collect, we buy you a plane ticket home, you get a job, you pay us back. He's like, that's your worst case scenario if you do this. That's the risk you're taking. Like, is that a risk you can live with? And I was like, well, yeah, that doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> um, yeah, that must have felt really, really validating to especially get that advice from from the, you know, the quote unquote practical person yeah. to, the, the fail, to say, like, listen, go out there and don't be afraid to fail. And if you do, you know, we've got your back where you're where you're supporting that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when you're um, looking to, like, uh, how do you dig up? How do you dig up your stories? What is kind of like your pre-query routine look like? Hmm. I probably don't have like a routine that follows from story to story. So much of what I do is is regional. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of it is based around the Yukon or Alaska, and and um, <clears throat> just kind of my own knowledge of the area, having been here for six years now, and so. Uh, I'm trying to think of different stories I've done and how I came up with them. So, for instance, my first story for SB Nation long form, uh, No Sleep Till Fairbanks. Okay. That, that was, was your first one. Okay. Yeah, that was my first one for them. And it was about the Yukon Quest sled dog race. But it wasn't so much about the race as it was about the support crews that follow the race. And I got that idea because the year before, I had actually worked for the race doing their social media. And... I had been part of this kind of traveling circus of like veterinarians and volunteers and media and support crews, the handlers who, who follow the race in trucks and, you know, sleep in parking lots. And, um, and I just thought I was, while I was doing it, I was like, this is crazy. This is a crazy sort of alternate race that's happening alongside this sled dog race. And so the next year I pitched, uh, I pitched Glenn at SB Nation on, on the idea of this kind of traveling circus that follows this sled dog race across country for a thousand miles that must have really appealed to your live out of a suitcase sensibility too <laughs> yeah i mean when i was living out of a suitcase i was i was uh it wasn't minus 50 but um <laughs> yeah so what do you feel like needs to be in place for you to pursue a story in full i guess that's the big question, right? That's still what I feel like I'm figuring out is what what makes the stories that really work work and which ones are just kind of ideas or topics or, you know, I think there needs to be some degree of conflict, you know, there needs, that's, you know, the, the like grade school definition of a story is like protagonist meets obstacle, you know, protagonist with goal meets obstacle, overcomes it or doesn't overcome it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that gets lost sometimes. Um, and I'm guilty of that too, in terms of you just, you hear about something interesting or an interesting person, but if you don't know what the goal and the obstacle are, then you don't really have a story necessarily. Um, yeah, so much of, of newspaper feature writing are, they aren't narratives, they're just reports. Yeah. And, and so there is that distinction you need, there has to be, it's like what, uh, John Franklin wrote in his his book, I believe it's called Writing for Story. I could be a little bit wrong in the title, but like, sure. have you read that book? 
I haven't, but I've, I definitely have heard of writing for story. Yeah, and like basically up top, you need to have uh, you need to be able to essentially summarize the story in about three words, an active sentence that lays out the complication, and um, and then in the final act, that complication they need to tie together with the resolution, like you know, mm-hmm. uh, boy meets girl at the end, you know, they're together. They have to tie together. And um, and that's just the essence of, of narrative. But so much of like newspaper stuff is just like some exposition, some quote, exposition, quote, setup, yeah. quote. And that's not story, but that's kind of the the muscle that you build in in newspapers. So I think a lot of times it's you have uh, through a lot of research, you have what is essentially like a, a nice newspaper feature, but there isn't that engine that really moves you from scene to scene. Yeah, and, that makes sense. And like, uh, I guess that's that's the struggle. I so like, do do you feel like you come? It's like you're always in constant search of that of the the cinematics of it, and and it, through those cinematics, you might be able to okay, there is something deeper, a complication or a conflict that's going to drive this to a greater resolution in the end. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I honestly, I feel like this is maybe the hardest part in some ways. I mean, I'm, I, um, just even talking about it with you is like, yeah, I should, I should be thinking in these terms every time, <laughs> and I don't think I always do. Um, but yeah, it's because uh, I, I think it's um, like, have you, do you have sort of like a, a bounce rate for your own stories? Like, you look at this, you're like, you want it to be interesting, and then it, it, you, you're like, ah, just. It doesn't, I want it to be there, but it's just not there and you just got to move on. Yeah. And I, I probably don't do enough of that pre-vetting myself. I, I often let editors tell me it's not there after I've pitched it to them. Yeah. <laughs> I should probably, I should probably, yeah, I, I get interested in places and people and, and I want to write about them and, but yeah, what's, what's the conflict? What's, what's the engine? Like you said. Yeah, that's uh, that's the challenge. But it, it sounds like the fact that you've sort of like broken, you're having this sort of dialogue with with uh, with these editors. Like, what are those conversations like when you're just on the cusp of maybe that that conflict? What are you going back and forth with to try to get these stories that you want written greenlit? Hmm. I don't feel like I. Uh, I don't have a ton of. I don't do a ton of back and forth. It's typically mm-hmm. like a like a firm yes or a firm no. <laughs> yeah. For me. And I guess there's been a few times when sort of the shape of the thing has evolved over the course of a conversation with the editor. <clears throat> More often that's after it's been assigned though. Like Unclimbable changed a lot over the course of working on it with Glenn. You might have seen that in his note in the the best of thing that he posted today. He said that it, you know, it it turned into a story that neither of us really expected. And we had that we went back and forth on that story tons in terms of trying to shape, you know, what am I really saying and, and what is my relationship to these girls and, and what, what their experiences are teaching me and how that applies to my own experiences. And, um, so with that story, how did you come to the decision that you wanted to be, uh, somewhat of a part of it? Yeah. Um, 
that was my that was my concept from the beginning that I would be in it and the idea would be about the different ways that we explore our limitations and their limitations obviously being way more badass than mine <laughs> um but this idea that we both were learning to walk away from something or to accept our limits um I kind of viewed it as sort of a sequel to um another story I'd written for Glenn why we play which was an the essay. one paddling down the is that no. the river piece no no it was a an essay from 2014 about um uh a local athlete here in in the Yukon who oh okay yes 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 I remember that yep yeah and so that one was about kind of a consideration of why we take the risks we do in sports and whether or not it's worth it and then this unclimbable I saw as kind of a sequel in terms of being about what happens when we step back from risk um and choose not to take that risk in some ways, you know, make that decision to, to accept a limitation rather than challenge it. So much of, I feel like so much of outdoor adventure writing is about pushing your limits and breaking your limits and proving you can do more than you think you can. Um, and this to me was something about, about what happens when you say, no, that I've done enough. This is enough. Yeah. Well, when read together, that's really interesting. Uh, I've read both of them so in in that sequence and when you when you pair them together it you get a a sense of the evolution of a of a person it's like uh the the spectrum of maturity starts to the the lever moves yeah in that direction which is really interesting i think anytime i like going forward now like anytime i'll, I'll recommend those pieces i'll be like oh, you can't read one without the other and read this one first and then like or see it as kind of like a daily double <laughs> cool <laughs> i think that's a really that's a really good take and like you kind of that's illuminating to see see you make that distinction between the two of like here's what ha- here's like the ultimate of pushing your limits and the result of that w- that can happen and then stepping back realizing that you know there there's more than just this inherent risk there's you know you can you you want to be alive to do do this more yeah. So, um, at what point did you feel like you were comfortable to support yourself fully on your freelancing? <laughs> um, when were you able to sign that lease? <laughs> yeah, I signed the lease in, I guess, like, I, I got an apartment again in November 2009, and I had left behind my previous apartment in June 2008. So... But uh, but since then, there's been ups and downs as well. So I, I, from spring 2009 until the end of 2010, I, I was still freelancing, but I was on contract full as a full-time editor with a travel website called World Hum. Mm-hmm. And so I was making like, you know, something, you know, a real salary. It wasn't a salary, it was a contract, but it was it was like a salary and I was working full-time. And so that was when I felt able to to start having an apartment again. And then... That ended uh, because the site lost its corporate funding in at the end of 2010. And 2011 was a, like a disaster financially, total disaster. Hmm. Um, and then 2012, I had a staff job at a local magazine and kind of, you know, put the pieces back together a little bit financially. And then 2013 and even 2014, I was pretty on edge in terms of being certain that I would keep on making money. Mm-hmm. And it's really just this year, I'd say, in 2015, that I've been like, yeah, I'm established enough now that I know enough people that, you know, if 
if one gig falls through, another one will come up or, you know, if, if everything fell through somehow, I have friends who would help me out and pitch some writing my way. You know, it's, um, it's really, it's really been a long process of feeling at all stable and even, yeah, even now, I mean, I feel like I'm going to keep earning a living, but my definition of living is not everyone's definition of a living. You know, I, I don't have kids or a mortgage or anything. And so my, my definition of having a stable living would not cut it for a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So what is the, what is the nature of your hustle? Like, how do you, what is your approach to, to, uh, getting the queries out there and just like when one is rejected, how often do you, like, when does that go right back out? You know? So what is the nature of your hustle? I guess. Okay. Um, I have a couple of sort of steady gigs. I have my um, column with Pacific Standard that's every two weeks. So I set that up for all of 2015. And I also have a contract with a local magazine up here, the the people I was on staff with in 2012, to do a certain amount of short pieces for them every month. So I have those as a basic grounding. And then I have um, sort of freelance features on top of that. And I typically have between sort of three and six on the go. Um, whether that's meaning in the pitching phase or been accepted and I'm reporting them or they're being written or they're somewhere in edits or just waiting for them to be published. Um, like right now I have one that's about to be published, two in edits, and one that I'll do the reporting for in February, but it's already assigned. And then I have beyond that a list of maybe three to five more ideas that I'm going to start pitching after the holidays. I, I kind of I took a bunch of time off from pitching this fall, so um, because my my uh, my mom died in the summer. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, thanks. It was it was uh, pretty horrible, but um, it was totally unexpected. Really? So yeah, I it's even even worse. Yeah, I kind of couldn't stop right away because I had you know things that had to get done, or else there'd be holes in magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, just not an acceptable outcome, really. Yeah. <laughs> So I kind of kept working for the first sort of six, seven weeks after after she died and then was like, okay, now it's time to, to slow down a little bit and take some time off. So I'm just getting back into pitching and after the holidays, I'll, I'll start pitching these. I'll do some pre-reporting um, and pitching for probably three or four feature ideas and I have for each of them, some of them might only fit with like the first publication I'm going to pitch and others might fit with some alterations in three or four publications that I would pitch. And so I'll go, you know, make my list and go down the list. And I, I don't cold pitch hardly at all anymore. I have a list of editors who I know, who know me and who typically answer my emails, which is the first step, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so I, I very rarely bother to go outside that list anymore and just cold pitch someone who I have no idea if they'll even acknowledge my existence. Mm Mm-hmm. Cause you just, you know, how long do you wait? I don't know. So I'll, I'll go down my list of editors I know and, and pitch them these stories. And, and, you know, if, if three or four say no, then I typically abandon an idea unless I'm really attached to it for some reason. Um, and yeah, hopefully line up some, some feature contracts for 2016. So what would you say your batting average is when you're pitching, uh, to the even the to these editors that you even have relationships with. Hmm. Yeah. Low. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm pitching. You know, I've, I'm 
I'm swinging for the fences at this point. I'm I'm pitching the big magazines and and I'm super glad to have editors that are that are encouraging me and and typically sending me sort of encouraging rejection notes at them. But it's 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 hard to find the right idea in the right moment. And uh and yeah, timing one, timing is often a big a big deal too. Like there are a lot of things that are that can be out of your control. Like you could have a a really good idea, but someone just published the story like that, or exactly, or it's just like uh, it's just maybe not the right season of the year, and or it's like uh, the Olympics are coming, and it's not a winter Olympic year, even though you have a winter Olympic kind of story. So it's like it could be really you know, certain things just out of your control, and it's like once it, that's got to be tough to contend with, I imagine. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting to be at this point where I feel like I could, you know, not to use too many sports analogies, but I feel like I'm kind of you know like a like a farm team player in the feature writing world at this point with like with potential, mm-hmm. you know, and you get and a I'm September trying, call up. Yeah, I'm trying to get the call up and. <laughs> And there's people who are like, yeah, we want to call you up. You just need to get the right idea for us. And it it that feels great. It feels like this could all happen really suddenly maybe. You know, maybe I'll just like have a crazy year and, and bust out all over the place. Or mm-hmm. we, I'll keep pitching these guys for another two or three years before I get the right idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of it is – a lot of this game, uh, certainly talent is uh, undeniable. You need to have some kernel of talent, but a lot of it – Sometimes it's just having the strength to endure. Mm-hmm. So um, how do you juggle, you know, you say you've got, you know, you might have some pieces in pre-reporting, some in reporting, and some in editing. So how do you juggle all that? Like, what's your process to keep everything straight? Yeah, I'm super analog. Um, so I have, like, handwritten notes all over my desk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, I have my one main list sits on a piece of paper right above my computer on the wall. And it's just a list of features that I've been assigned and their due dates and then notes about what stage they're in. So that's how I keep track of stuff I'm actually working on. And then the pitching I keep track of in a separate list and have notes about, you know, I, I have sort of like for a given pitch, I'll have an item in my to-do list where I write out, you know, uh, I'm making this up, but firefighting idea or whatever. And then it's like, make this call, you know, write up this pitch. And, and I just go down the list of things that need doing. Uh, yeah, I don't, I have a, I have a spreadsheet for uh, money stuff, but I don't have a spreadsheet. I used to have a spreadsheet for ideas, but now that I'm sort of only working on maybe three to five ideas at a time, I don't have a whole spreadsheet for them anymore. I just keep track of them in paper lists on my like notepad next to my desk. So what does the, kind of like changing gears just a little bit, um, what does the first hour of your day look like? Okay. Um, Like when do you wake up and then what does the first hour look like? I am not a morning person at all, (laughs) Um, which is frustrating because being on Pacific time, I already feel way behind in the day by the time I get up. You know, it's already like if I get up at 7 a.m., it's 10 a.m. in New York. If I get up at 8 a.m., which is what I would prefer rather than 7 a.m., it's 11 a.m. in New York already. People are already about to take their lunch break almost, you know, it's like, um, so I get up, I usually have a bunch of emails. Wait, I go straight, I put the kettle on, I go straight to the computer and do you drink tea? I drink tea. 
Yeah. What kind of tea? Chai. Chai. Every morning? Every morning. All right. So you've got your tea. The kettle's on. (laughs) Hop into your computer. Yeah. Go through whatever emails are waiting for me. Typically, it's like notifications from Twitter and PR stuff and like see if there's anything of a substance, you know, from an editor or whatever. And then... um, and then I'd go on Twitter and spend way too much time there. <laughs> and then, yeah, the first hour is pretty much like tea, email, Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Is it, it, you know, even though you're kind of like saying that Twitter might be a little bit of a waste of time, I think for you, it's the way you warm up, right? It's kind of like yeah. your calisthenics. Yeah, I would like to, you know, I imagine myself becoming a person who gets up and does yoga or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if that will ever actually happen. Um, But it would probably be healthier than immediately going straight to my laptop. Uh, (laughs) Do you meditate at all? I don't. You know, I've, I've, I, I got really into yoga a couple years ago and my, my yoga teacher does like meditation classes as well, but I haven't, the timing hasn't worked out to take one yet. It'd probably be really good for me. So, Okay. So, and then once you, once you got through, through the T email, Twitter, then like when you're getting into the, the guts of, you know, the, the work that really matters, what does that look like? Yeah, it depends on the day. It might be that I have a whole morning of sort of like organizing invoices and contracts and paperwork sometimes. Um, cause there's a lot of, that's one reason why I started doing fewer smaller stories and more big stories is because there's like an equal amount of administration involved to get a small story paid out as it is, you know, like to, sometimes it feels like the work involved in getting paid a hundred or 200 bucks is like not even mm-hmm. worth it. But, um, so sometimes it's paperwork. Sometimes it's, um, placing phone calls for, for reporting. Um, Sometimes I'm just reading stuff. I, you know, it's like it's funny how little time you spend actually writing. I find like, yeah, my friends who aren't writers will be like, "Oh, did you like write lots today?" I'm like, no, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't write unless I have a deadline. <laughs> right. Um, Do you journal at all? No, I don't. Unless I'm traveling, um, like if I'm on a backcountry trip, I keep a journal. If I'm away from the computer and stuff. And- uh, and when you're out and about in your day, do you always keep a notebook on you just in case, yeah. like, ideas strike? Typically. Sometimes I rely on my phone for that these mm-hmm. days. Um, I used to always have a notebook on me. And now uh, now more often I'm making a note in my phone about if a story idea comes to me. What are your go-to apps on the home screen of your phone? Um, I... Do not use a ton of apps, partly because I'm just sort of stupid with technology, but I'm just looking at my phone now. Um, yeah, I mean, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram would be the big three. Mm-hmm. And then I have my, you know, my podcasts. And that's kind of it for my phone. Um, and then my iPad, I have Netflix and um, well, I used to have the Atavist app before they phased that out and long form. So I, I use my iPad more for sort of recreational stuff and the phone mainly for, you know, texting and email and Facebook and Twitter. What and, types of podcasts are you attracted to? You know, the only one I listen to really regularly is the long form podcast. Yeah. 
Um, and I also listen to like Gangry the podcast, which is the um, Matt Tullis's mm-hmm. uh, journalism podcast. Uh, I'm really bad at kind of retaining audio information without focusing. Like I, I can't do very much else at the same time that I listen to a podcast if I'm going to retain any information from it at all. So I don't just like have podcasts on all the time. I have to kind of say, okay, now it's time to listen to the podcast. I I listen to podcasts on planes a lot when there's nothing to distract me. Mm -hmm. And also like I might, I like in the winter here, I take a lot of baths. So I might like take a bath and listen to the long form podcast or something. So what other types of artistic media do you draw inspiration from? You know, TV, movies, paintings. Yeah. um, Documentaries. I watch a lot of movies, mostly pretty crappy ones. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, what was the last movie you saw oh um i did a star wars original trilogy rewatch this weekend in preparation for the force awakens awesome yeah i gotta <laughs> tell you i loved the new movie yeah i'm really excited i'm going to see yeah. it tonight it's, oh, well, uh, oh good for you it is if you're if you're a star wars geek like i am you're gonna dig it yeah that's yeah. Uh, I've never been like a hard, a hardcore Star Wars person, but I always liked them. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not I'm, like I'm not one to to dress up or anything, but uh, but it's it this movie. Ape, I think he did a did a really good job with it, and it's just a it's just a fun movie to watch. Cool. You know, so you're gonna dig it. I'll stop. I'll stop at that. Um, so like, do you watch a lot of documentaries at all? I don't. You know, I um, I I sort of. I mostly divide my kind of my like serious culture consumption comes from books and and magazines and then my sort of veg out time comes from movies and TV and I sort of divide things that way. So what books are in your nightstand like on your nightstand? Um what am I reading right now? I just I haven't started it yet, but I just bought Between the World and Me uh by Tanahasi Coates, which I'm looking forward to. And I'm reading uh, The Big Year, which is a book about birding. Hmm. Um, it was made into a movie a few years ago uh, with Steve Martin and Owen Wilson and Jack Black. It was actually filmed here in the Yukon, so that's how I heard about it. Um, yeah, it's about this like massive birding competition. It's a nonfiction book that uh, I'm enjoying. How do you compete in birding? Uh, so A Big Year is when you try to spot the most bird species in a calendar year i believe and so these people will save up and plan for like years and then they'll take a year off from their job and spend the whole year traveling the world trying to spot exotic bird species and trying to rack up like hundreds of sightings um so this book follows three very different guys as they compete in a big year against each other to try to be the one who spots the most how how do they make sure that that's fair um uh, you know bird- like is it an honor system type deal or birding they- on the honor system yeah huh interesting i mean they're they take photos when they can right but uh but yeah birding kind of operates on the honor system which is sort of interesting um birding is one of these subcultures that i'm sort of sort of interested in potentially to write about at some point or there's i find there's there's like sports and other subcultures that i'm not necessarily interested in doing so much as 
as writing about like like climbing I I climb a little bit and would like to climb a little bit more than I do but I'm never going to be a crazy climber but I think climbing's fascinating to write about yeah and uh and birding for some reason seems similar to me I sort of like have a weird birding thing going on right now I took uh an an advanced ornithology class when I was at uh an undergrad cool Uh, and so like when you if you're whenever you're ready to do some birding stuff like I know like my professor there like he he wouldn't remember me but at least I know a name and a point of contact for maybe you to start start doing some research you know he's his name's Bruce Byers and he's uh just a sort of a renowned ornithologist and cool. animal behavior person so that could be a lead domino for you if in yeah. case you're looking to start getting into uh some ornithological writing if you will um so that's cool so um what is your your favorite book and why hmm that is a hard question um i know that's a tough one for for uh bookish people yeah for a long time i would have said homage to catalonia Mm -hmm. but well uh that was a while ago though i haven't reread it in a long time i'm not sure what i would think of it now um I really love David Grant's The Lost City of Z. That's a good one, yeah. A lot. Um, the way he kind of combines um, history and contemporary reporting and first-person stuff is sort of like my ideal of what I'd like to do in, for some things. Not everything needs to be about history, but that mm-hmm. is, you know. Um, hmm. I like. I really like anthologies and collections um, so again, you know, like, uh, David Grant's, uh, the devil in Sherlock Holmes is sits sort of by my bed, um, for when I need to look at it. Pulphead is also in that pile. Um, Ian Fraser's gone to New York. I found really inspiring when I was starting out. I haven't reread it in a long time, but I remember it being really important to me. It's like a series of, of his New Yorker essays about sort of being a New Yorker. Are you in New York? I, you know, I'm. Sort of, ne- well, I was near New York. I just moved to Lawrenceville, and I'm in New Jersey, which is kind of okay. kind of near Princeton. Right, okay. So I moved a little bit south, um, but I am kind of was in the greater New York area, but just moved about an hour south from there, so cool. have sort of access to it. And when I was starting out, I was kind of obsessed with New York City and the idea that that's where writers go. Mm-hmm. And so stuff like uh, Ian Fraser's New York stuff was, you know, he had a one essay... Uh, I think it's called Gone to New York. I think it's the title essay um, about sort of how he ended up in New York as a young writer. That was like my like spirit animal for a while. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's great looking at the, the, the skyline just elicits this romantic idea. Like you can you go there and you're just gonna, you're going to carve out your own destiny and everything. It's, yeah. it's like a Remy and Ratatouille over, overlooking the Paris skyline. Yeah. Well, I was I was thinking of another mouse rat move. <laughs> you know, I was, the streets are paved with cheese. <laughs> you know, it's funny you um, you uh, referring to anthologies and stuff like they're those are so so good. They're like how to books without the instructions. Totally. Right. Yeah, I agree completely. And uh, what are uh, is there a particular book that you reread over and over again? Um, yeah, I reread, I typically reread On Writing Well every couple years, mm-hmm. uh, Stephen Zinzer, and I reread Stephen King's On Writing as well. That's, yeah, 
both great. Uh, I especially love the Stephen King one. That's yeah. Um, what else do I reread? Uh, I'm sure there are others that I'm forgetting about temporarily. Do you, um, let's see, what was the first book that you truly loved? Chronicles of Narnia. Nice. And yeah. what, what was it about it that, that struck you? I don't know. I was like five the first time I read those <laughs> and I, I, I reread them. I don't know how many times when I was a kid, my parents eventually just bought me a box set so that I could reread them whenever I wanted to. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, uh, I've always liked adventure stories, I guess, you know, whether it's fantasy stories or shipwrecks or mountaineering or, you know, like I, I think I like adventure stories. Well, I think that comes across in your work, your, your nonfiction. I like, I, I would describe it as simplistically as just taking you somewhere. And that is in essence what a lot of these fantasy books do they take you they transport you to a place that's exotic and i can you can probably say probably without even thinking about it, it's like having read the chronicles so early in your life it kind of informed your sensibility and your taste and the stuff that you're drawn to right now and i think you're doing like just a fa- fantastic job of taking us places with your work well thanks yeah i feel like i'm just figuring this out even just as we're talking like so my area of expertise when I was in grad school was uh, the British Empire. Hmm. And that got me some weird looks. You know, people <laughs> were like, why are you studying imperialism? Like, are you into imperialism? <laughs> like, and I would, my answer was always, no, it's just, a great, it's just a great story. Something crazy is always happening in the history of the British Empire. There's always, you know, battles and expeditions. And obviously a lot of bad things happened. But... Um, I, I think I was drawn to that for the same reasons I was drawn to shipwreck books or to adventure stories now, you know? Absolutely. And I want to just, uh, you know, I want to be respectful of your time here. So um, just like a couple more things. And I, I wonder as you're, you know, as you're sort of, things are really starting to come together for you. Uh, I wonder where your optimism lies. You know, how there's so much, there's a, like just a lot of, a lot of crap going on out there. It's easy to to say, like, why would you, why keep doing this? And I wonder what fuels you and what keeps you going and it keeps you doing the work in the face of what just on the surface really doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, um, two things. One is just, a, I don't, I don't know where I acquired this this certainty, but somewhere along the line, I became you know firmly convinced that my work is good, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and this is something I think I, I don't, writers I feel like there's so much kind of like oh everything I do is shit, and I'm like I don't I don't know if I believe you that you think that how do you I don't know how you keep going if you don't think your work is good in in this environment, um, so I I believe that I'm good at what I do and that other people will see that and that, you know, sees me through the tough times when a story gets killed or falls apart or whatever. I'm like, it's going to be okay. I'm good at this. You know? Um, I don't know how, I don't know how people who don't feel that way manage. Um, and it's, and it sounds so immodest. It's, but I don't, you have to, there's, you have to believe that you're good. I don't, I don't, I don't know. But, um, there's that. And then there's encouragement from the outside, um, from, you know, from editors and other writers really, really helps to hear from, people 
that they think you're good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and I, you know, I I literally have like motivational post-its above my desk with like, you know, encouraging notes from editors written out on them. Um to remind me when I'm when I'm doubting myself that like, you know, if if somebody who's at the, you know, who's in a position to know better than I do, thinks I can do this, then I can do this, you know. So you it does help for you to to rem- you need to remind yourself that that you're that you're good from time to time like yeah it, that helps absolutely it, it's uh it, it's a tough it's a tough business and it's like you know there's a lot of people saying no to you all the time and so you have to believe that that's going to change in the future or that enough people are going to keep saying yes and yeah very nice and um yeah i guess in closing here where can people find you on the internet Okay. Um, my website is typically a few months out of date, but it's evaholland.com. And I try to post my new stories there. And, um, you know, I'll probably do like a year end review there next week or something. Um, and then where I'm most active is Twitter, where I'm just at Eva Holland. And I post my stories and the stuff I'm reading and dumb jokes and <laughs> photos from the Yukon and that sort of thing. So that's, that's like the easiest place to find me and interact with me. My email address is also on my website. If somebody needs to reach me. Fantastic. Well, that's all, all great, great stuff. Well, Eva, I'm going to let you go. I want to be respectful of your time here. Thank you so much for, for carving out a few ca- carving out an hour here and for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Brendan. You ask good questions. Oh, well, thanks very much. And just, uh, Promise me you'll keep up the good work. I, I love every word you write, and I look forward to many, many more years of of your good work. Oh, thanks. I'll 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 try my best. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. We'll have to have a part two sometime, hopefully. Yeah. Very nice. All right. Well, you take care, and we'll uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks. You too. All right. Bye. Bye.